chapter 6 if you have your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, right there in front of you, in the seat pocket in front of you, we have some Bibles that we've provided for you. And um, if you don't have a Bible, by all means, take that with you. We've got plenty, so we want you to have the Scriptures in your home. Feel free to take that with you. And if you're using one of those Bibles that are in the chairs, we're going to be on page 556 today. And um, we're continuing a series we started last week called Glorify God in Your Body. And um, we're going to start today on this passage in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in verse 9. So everybody find that and let's begin. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and he will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You may be seated. Thus says God's word. I want to ask you to do something this morning. We're going we're gonna to talk about a, a wide range of subjects. And, and sadly, unless I turn this into like a two or three month series, there's no way that I can possibly address every facet, every aspect of the things that we're going to talk about. So I'm going to ask you to do me a favor and hopefully yourself a favor as well. Daryl mentioned the white cards. I want everybody in this room to grab one of these and hold it up so I can see that you're obeying me. Just kidding. (laughs) Everybody grab one of these. Okay, hold it up high. Grab one of these cards. I'm going to invite you to do something that you may have never been invited to do in in this type of service before. But on the back, there's a prayer request uh, portion. We're going to just disregard, unless you need it to be, the prayer request part today. And and here's what I want you to do. During any part of this sermon, any part, if you have further questions and you want to ask them, and you can ask them completely anonymously, you can do that on this form. And and what I'll do, if they're anonymous, then I will set aside a, a, a message in a few weeks to answer those concerns. 
Some of you might say, hey, I, you talked about something and I need to talk a little bit more about that. So I would like for you to call me. You can put your information on there and I will call you this week. I will be in touch with you ASAP if you want to do that. Others of you might disagree with me. You might have, have some comment or criticism about something I want to see. That's fine. But, but I would really invite your feedback. So keep this in your hand while I share this with you. And if you have anything that you want to know or that you have further questions about, or you want to disagree with me about, absolutely fine. But I want to get some feedback from you. And at the end of the service, metal box there um, at, the, at the back of the sanctuary, you can just drop that in there and we will uh, we'll process them from there. So, And no one will see those, by the way, but me. So I will process them from there. So just so you know. Um, so last week, uh, catching up, we said that human beings alone in all of creation have the honor and dignity of being made in the image and the likeness of God. And that is to say that human beings are like God in many ways and as the vice regents of creation that they represent God. They stand in his place representing him. But we also discovered that that dignity was corrupted by mankind's fall into sin and now men and women though still bearing God's image, are not as much like God as they were before. This image has been corrupted and polluted in multiple distinct ways. But Jesus came to display for us what the perfect image of God looked like. And through the cross, through his resurrection, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, he is progressively transforming believers to return back to the image of God. Isn't that good news? I love that. To accomplish this, the physical bodies of all who believe have become the dwelling place. The Bible says the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are now under new ownership, thank God. They're under new ownership, and we have a holy obligation to glorify God in our bodies, to live as slaves to Christ and not as slaves to the flesh. And So before we proceed and, and, and go back to the passage that we read and expand on a little bit last week, we're going to discover a little bit. It'll be helpful to know something about the Corinthian church, who this letter was originally directed to. Simply put, the Corinthian church could have very easily been booked on the Jerry Springer show. The, the good news is, as we look at that and we see this church is just an absolute wreck, an absolute mess, the good news is that that church in particular can give us significant confidence about and, and insight about God's love and his patience and his grace for the church and his ability to lovingly correct his own body. Gives us great confidence that God isn't done with even the most screwed up church. That's good news. In chapter 5, just to give you a couple of examples, Paul has dealt with a man who's taken his own stepmother to be a lover. Paul, horrified, says that the church was arrogant and they were boasting about it instead of mourning and dealing with the sin in their midst. And then at the beginning of chapter 6, Paul addresses the Corinthians' habit of suing one another in court instead of resolving even the most minor disagreements within the church. Can you imagine coming to a church like that where we said, hey, that was my parking place, I'll see you in court. I mean, that's what was going on in the Corinthian church. He told them that this particular practice had brought tremendous disgrace on the name and the cause of Jesus. In the portion we just read, Paul strongly alludes to the fact that members of their congregation are carousing with prostitutes. 
And there's all kinds of other scandalous issues in this particular church dealt with throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. People were getting drunk at the communion table. That would make it for an interesting Sunday, wouldn't it? By the time we pick up where we did today, Paul addresses these things that have infiltrated the church with a sweeping pronouncement. You read it, verse 9. He says this, Or do you not know, Corinthian church, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then so that there's no misunderstanding, he, he, he kind of shows what kind of people he's talking about as the unrighteous. He says, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. See, Paul lists nine particular sins telling this church that they are absolutely fooling themselves if they think that those who practice such things have any hope at all of inheriting the kingdom of God. And this list is not meant to be exhaustive. It's like, well, I'm not on the list, thank God. But no, it's not, it's not meant to be exhaustive. It's, it's rather to be examples of things, as Paul says in, in Colossians, uh, for which the wrath of God is coming. We talked about this a few weeks ago. God is one day going to come with judgment, and it's for these types of reasons that he's coming, to bring judgment. His words here where he says these kind of people won't inherit the kingdom of God, they, they kind of echo something Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3.3. 3. He said, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Both Jesus and Paul are stating that entrance into the kingdom of God requires a God-orchestrated transformation of life from the top down. It's a prerequisite for entry, for inheritance, for seeing the kingdom of God. Paul is concerned that when the people of the church have no distinction whatsoever from the people of the world, it does two things. It creates confusion about the nature of the glory of the gospel to outsiders. And secondly, it creates a lack of assurance among the people of the church from the inside. But even, now watch this, this is very important to see. Even in the flashing red light and the siren blaring of their own disgraceful sins, Paul does not say, hey, Corinthian church, you better shape up and act right. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. He doesn't even tell them that they've blown it beyond repair and they're going to be cast into hell. What he does, now watch this, this is so great. What he does is he takes all these people that he's just that wagged his finger in their face, accused them of all these sins, talked about prostitution, all these terrible things. And what he does is he, he reminds them once again of the gospel's original effect on them. He doesn't say, all right, I'm going to lay down some law here and you better get it together. He says, but wait, church, Corinthian church, you've forgotten about the gospel's effect on you, what it accomplished in you. He puts all of the emphasis when he makes a statement in the past tense. He uses the word, the word were, W-E-R-E, in, in four times in one verse. Verse 11, he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, Paul is reminding them that in their former identity, in their former identity, they were sexually immoral. They were idol worshipers and adulterers and homosexuals and thieves and greedy and drunks and troublemakers and cheats. But something has happened. 
Something has brought a pivot in their life so that things are different. Paul says that they were washed. He's saying when Jesus found them, he, he loved them too much to leave them where he found them. So he, he picked them up. He, he stripped the stained and tattered rags of sin and self-righteousness off of them. And he bathed them in his cleansing, forgiving blood. And he clothed them in his own perfect righteousness, which they could not earn and they can never lose. They were washed, but they were also sanctified. He's saying, yes, because of what Jesus did, you're positionally and covenantally clean because of Jesus. But now, Corinthians, the Holy Spirit is working daily to make you functionally righteous. Where you're not just righteous in some heavenly legal sense, but man, the way you act, the way you look is becoming righteous and holy. Paul said this, the same thing to the Philippians chapter 2 verse 13. He said, for it is God who is working in you or who works in you both to will and to do and to work for his good pleasure. It's God that's the origin of any positive change in your holiness. God is the start of it. But that's not all. He says that they have been justified. And when he says justified, he's speaking of their legal standing with God. At one time, they were the enemies of God. And God, the Bible says that God is angry with, with sinners all day long. But, but something has happened. Their, their legal standing has changed. They've been fully pardoned of all of their crimes. Romans 8.33 8, Romans 8, says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Because it's God that justifies. He's saying that, that hey, I can, I can look at you and I can say, well, what about this time? And what about that time? What about that time? And God has, has taken you with all of that being true and wiped the slate, the slate completely clean because of Jesus. Paul's point in verse 9, when he brings that up about the unrighteous not inheriting the kingdom of God, it's, it's not that they're going to go to hell or miss heaven when they dabble in the sins he's listing, list, lists. What is, his point is this, that they are making a grave, grave miscalculation about the nature of the gospel. And I'm telling you, it's one that we all have made and one that we all can still make. A grave miscalculation. See, they assume that through the gospel, they've been freed from the law to sin. There's no law anymore, so I can just do what I want. When in fact, they've been freed by the gospel from sin. The chains that held them bound to sin and death have been broken by the gospel. Spurgeon said, you will always know whether you're delivered from the guilt of sin by answering this question. Am I delivered from the love of sin? The gospel allows us to see Jesus as glorious and sin as poison and loss and death. It, it enables us to increasingly desire Christ and to increasingly despise sin. Paul then spends the rest of chapter 6 building a gospel-centered ethic for sexual behavior for the church. And this is really, really important for at least two reasons. First, I'm convinced that all people, please listen to this, I'm convinced that all people in all times, are not just generally fallen in sin, but as a direct result of sin, that all people are in some way sexually broken. I'm convinced of it. There's never been more observable proof of that fact than there is today. Every single instance of divorce, 
of sexual harassment, of assault, of child molestation, of homosexual activity, of pornography use, of spousal abuse, of religious prudishness, of of transgenderism, of adultery, of cohabitation, of fornication, of prostitution and abortion are all damning evidence of our universal sexual brokenness. Notice that I didn't list every variation of sexual sin, but I imagine in that short list I gave you that all of us have been engaged in or at least been affected by one or more of these things. But, but if you can measure your relative sexual wholeness and you come up with the conclusion that you're not broken, let me just remind you that Paul's list included nine specific sins, only three of them were sexual in nature. What's the point? The point is that we are all guilty before a holy God. Secondly, the reason this is so important is because the Bible's sexual ethic matters to our culture because it's never been, the culture itself has never been so generally confused as it is right now about things like gender and sex and God's good design for it. So let's start right there. The first thing you need to know about sex, listen to me, if you think that, that Christians, if you, maybe if you're not a Christian and you think Christians are a bunch of Puritans and prudes and things like that, the first thing you need to know about sex is that God designed it. Uh, I, I'm so glad for the small portion of you that believe that. I said that God designed sex. Well, of course he did. Mark, babies had to get here somewhere, somehow. You're not understanding what I'm saying. I'm saying that God... The creator of everything good designed all of the mystery, all of the wonder, all of the emotional connectedness, all of the procreative power, all of the pleasure, and all of the goodness of sex. That was not the devil's doing. That was God's design. And when he finished creating it on the sixth day, he said it was very good. Take a deep breath. It's okay. You can say, hey, sex is very good. I'm glad some of you are excited about that, man. Going to have a great, successful marriage. Even so, now listen to me carefully, even so the ultimate purpose of sex is not the consummation of marriage. It's not procreation. It's not the expression of love or even the the sensation of pleasure, although all of those things are important God-ordained secondary purposes. All of them are. God created it. But the ultimate purpose for our bodies, which would include the full expression of our sexuality, is the glory of God. That's the reason God created it. To bring Him glory. That's why He did it. He said it. 1 Corinthians 6.20, we read it last week. So glorify God in your body. Since the context of this passage is sex, it would be an allowable paraphrase to say that Paul is commanding the church glorify God with your sexuality. What he's saying? Paul proceeds in this section of Scripture, he, he proceeds by, by stating and setting up the series of arguments. And, and, and what has happened, the, 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 the Corinthians have stated their side of the argument as a slogan. And they put those forth um, you know, to, to kind of say, this is what, what we believe, this is, this is how, uh, what our stand is here. And Paul corrects them with truth. So throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's often going to repeat the slogan and then he'll counter it with the truth. The very first example of this in this passage is in in chapter 6, verse 12. And and we read this. Now notice the quotation marks around the phrase, all things are lawful for me. So he says it twice. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. 
All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Paul begins with a legal argument. Not, but not by saying that all things are lawful, despite what many have taught. He's not, he's not promoting this idea that, that you, know, you can just do whatever. He's not saying that. That's the Corinthian proposition, not the Christian one. But Paul holds this law, this, this, this freedom that they have, up to grace for comparison. The church has likely heard Paul preach about how the gospel has freed them from the Old Testament law. And incorrectly deduced that... That when it comes to sin, because we're freed from the Old Testament law, which is true, they've deduced that when it comes to sin, if it feels good, do it. I mean, you're free from sin. Why not? What, what would be the, what would, or free from the law, what would be the, the, the penalty in doing something? If it feels good, do it. But Paul reminds them that even though freed from the law as they are, all things are not helpful. And more than that, a believer shouldn't be controlled by anything or anyone but God. And it's grace, it's grace that highlights the difference. A powerful passage in in, uh, Titus chapter 3 says that it is the grace of God. Guess what it does? It doesn't give us the freedom to do whatever we want. The Bible says the grace of God teaches us to say no to unrighteousness. So you hold it up, you hold up grace to the law, and you find that grace doesn't give me the freedom to do whatever destructive thing I want to do. It actually frees me from feeling like I have to. Paul reminds them of this, that they're, they're, they're freed from the law. Paul then moves on to the next slogan. In verse 13, he says, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Paul now argues for a sexual ethic from the standpoint of the sanctity of the body because of the resurrection. The Corinthians are arguing... That the fact that we have a stomach in a world filled with food means that it's apparent from nature that we should just eat and drink and be merry. I mean, come on, why would I be hungry with all this delicious food around if, if I wasn't just supposed to just go nuts with it? And what they've done is they've taken the same slogan, this, this thing about food is meant for the stomach, stomach is meant for food. They've taken the same thing and they've applied the same reasoning to their sexual desires and their sexual organs. Well, I have this desire, I have this ability to fulfill it, so why not? And they conclude that both of those things exist solely for indulgence. But Paul soberly reminds them, listen carefully, that the stomach and food and hunger as we know it are all temporary. They're all passing away. They'll all be done away with at death and the judgment. But listen, not so with the body. See, the body is not destined for an end, it's destined for a renewal. Therefore, in this life, we treat this body with tremendous honor and dignity as something dedicated to the Lord for His glory. Just as God promised to raise Christ from death, and He did so, He has promised resurrection for my body as well. And so therefore, I must regard it as the Lord's property, not my own, the Lord's property reserved for that day. Y'all still with me? Everybody take a deep breath. This idea of what our bodies are created for and how we use them, this speaks strongly to the people that struggle with, say, same-sex attraction or gender confusion. 
And here's why. There, there are many in that situation. I, I understand that. And it's an incredibly difficult burden to bear. And because of that, um, I'm not going to be one of those guys that says, so just knock it off, just change your desires, change your feelings. I know the difficulty that sometimes accompanies the desire to, to, to you know, put that thing away from yourself. I understand that. I understand the agony of that. I've talked to lots of people in that situation. See, the world would surmise that you were born that way. Just like someone having blue hair or brown eyes. And therefore, because your desires are in that sense natural, they, they are with you from the beginning, that you should just give them in, give in to them. This is a complex issue. And I'm not going to insult you to, to, to say things like, well, you're just choosing that or whatever. I understand the complexity of this. But listen to me. If you claim to be a Christian, if you don't claim to be a Christian, it doesn't matter at all. But if you claim to be a Christian, I encourage you, as Paul said, to put to death the deeds of the body. Put them to death. Just like I would tell the same thing to somebody with strong heterosexual temptations. Our bodies, listen, Paul says, are not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Struggling with our battles, gay or straight, struggling through our battles, is to, to, in order to honor God, is universal, it's worth it, and it won't last forever. It won't. God is going to make us brand new one day. And, and the truth of the matter is that every one of us in this room could look at ourselves, look at our t- sinful tendencies and say, guess what? We were born that way. Every one of us. No exceptions. We were born that way. But David said it like this in the Psalms. He said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In other words, sin was with me from the very beginning. And in the sin did my mother conceive me. Some in this room, some in our culture, some in our friends and family connections may have been born with homosexual desires. Some of us may have been born with out of control heterosexual lust. Some of us may have been born vain or liars or selfish or violent or manipulative or fearful. But as followers of Jesus Christ, no matter how we were born, the remedy is the same for all of this stuff. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. We do this realizing our bodies are for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. And doing so, when we decide that no matter what the pull of our flesh is, that we are going to honor the Lord with what he has given us. When we do that, it carries great reward in this life as well as in the life to come. And that I promise you. Paul then gives us another thing to consider about engaging in sexual impurity. He says, do you not know, in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. He argues now from, the, from our association with Christ, and he tells the church that the parts of their bodies are in actuality the members of Christ's body. We know, we've heard the analogy from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 of how we are all members of Christ's body, but he's saying that the parts of your body are literally the parts of Christ's body because you are so closely associated with Christ. The Bible says your life is hidden in God with, or with Christ in God. And so just take a second 
And think about that. If, if, if these are Jesus' hands and Jesus' eyes and Jesus' ears and Jesus' feet, think about that for a second. Think about it and ask yourself these difficult questions. Would any of us imagine that it's okay to watch pornography with Jesus' eyes? Would we ask Jesus Christ to participate in a premarital or, or adulterous or same-sex tryst? Or as Paul says very bluntly, would we go out and get a hooker for Jesus? Kind of turns your stomach, doesn't it? That's exactly what Paul is saying. Paul responds to this, this idea with this Greek word, simple Greek word. The Greek word is may. And it's a little word meaning God forbid. May God never let this happen. Obviously, this thought is highly repulsive to Paul, considering the holiness and perfection of Jesus Christ. But that is exactly what we do when we engage in or when we justify sexual immorality as a believer. Paul says that the oneness that was designed to be found in marital sexual intercourse, where two people become one flesh, and this is repeated five times in Scripture, that it applies to every single sexual union even ones with prostitutes. The implication is that there are no such things, listen, young people especially, there are no such things as one-night stands or casual hookups. When you relate to someone sexually, you are physically, spiritually, and emotionally making a part of them to be a part of yourself as well as giving away a part of yourself to them forever. This is why the only safe place that God has designed this transaction to take place is within the bed of a holy marriage. What God designed, it wasn't because he's some kind of, as it's been said before, cosmic killjoy that wants to take all the fun out of life. He cares about you. He cares about your, your health, your mental, your physical, your spiritual health. He cares. And so he designed it where you, you would have a safe place to express what he created for good without the damage that comes with it. Otherwise, think about the implications, folks, young people especially. Otherwise, you'll be emotionally and spiritually disjointed, leaving little parts of your soul all over the place instead of entrusting yourself to one spouse who is the gift of God for you, with whom to be in lasting covenant. You know, you can look this up. Get your Googles out and look this up. And and it has been proven time and time again in every survey that's been taken that the most sexually satisfied adults, and these are not Christian surveys, these are just general surveys, are monogamous married people. So all this lie about, I can't see myself with one person for the rest of my life. It's a demonic lie and deception. It's an absolute lie. So you can go sow your wild oats, but you are sowing oats of destruction. God's intention was that you would, you would share this amazing gift in covenant. But Paul is saying, so that's one side of this, but Paul's saying that you not only make yourself one with someone else through the spiritual mystery of sex, but he says as a Christian, you're involving Jesus Christ in the transaction, and that is not the kind of sharing Jesus that the Bible encourages. It's a kind that mocks the holiness and the perfection of Jesus. As the bride of Christ, he also says that we've already become one spirit with Jesus. Therefore, we can conclude that sexual impurity on the part of the people of God, married, single, same-sex, attracted, or straight, boils down to adultery against Jesus, to whom we have been betrothed and to whom we belong. 
Paul begins concluding his gospel-centered ethic with a command. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Could he be more blunt than that? Could he be just as straight up as that? This is the only option for Jesus' church. We can't dabble in it. We can't excuse it. We can't justify it. But we are commanded to flee from sexual immorality. Run like Joseph did in Genesis 39. There's a time to stand and fight But when it comes to sexual temptation, your best bet is always to cut and run. Don't stand there waiting to see if you can survive it. Get out of there. Get out of there. And Paul has one more argument to make. And this one is, interestingly enough, from self-interest. He says this in, in verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What does Paul mean by these phrases, outside the body and sins against his own body? Is sexual immorality a special kind of sin? And if so, how so? Does sexual sin place our souls in more jeopardy than lying, stealing, or even murder? The answer might lie in the fact, and, and, and many commentators have pointed this out, the answer might lie in the fact that the word other is not... Do we still have that up? So that word other, every other sin, is not in the original Greek. What's happened is commentators have added it because they have difficulty explaining the meaning of the verse without it. So if you took that out, it would read, every sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So when we take that out, it becomes quickly apparent, and this is becoming a consensus among Bible uh, commentators, is that that actually, this idea of every sin being outside the body, is actually another slogan from the Corinthians. This is something that they were saying. And what that implies is that they are arguing, the Corinthians, not Paul, are arguing that every sin is committed outside the body. They apparently believed that the body was morally insignificant. And we talked about this last week in kind of the the Platonistic uh, uh, philosophy of the day, that the body is morally insignificant in the divine reckoning. And that sin was only possible in our motives and in our intents. So if, if I have a bad intention or a bad motive, then it's sin. But Paul answers this false assertion by declaring the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Why would anyone do that? Why would I rob from myself or murder myself or lie about myself? The, 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 it makes no sense. But that's the nature of sexual sin, as Paul is saying. It's like an attack from me on me. He's saying that the body is very significant, both in this life and in the one to come. And it needs to be be regarded as very important to God, as well as to us. And then he comes to where we began last week. He says, you know, he set up this argument. Why would you sin against your own bodies, Corinthians? And he says this, he says, or do you not know? Have you missed this whole big point of the gospel? Have you, has this just gone right over your head? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you're not your own. If you're truly a follower of Jesus, you don't, we talked about this last week, you, you don't hold the deed anymore. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So what, what option is left to us? Glorify God in your body. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to Him. So the things that our culture sexually, sinfully are plagued with, if we look at them, we can ask ourselves questions about do they or do they not or how do they fail to give God glory 
And I would make these fundamental arguments that homosexuality, transgenderism, gender fluidity fail to bring God glory. Because think about this. They fail to bring God glory with our bodies because they begin with a fundamental assertion that God made a mistake when he created us. It basically says, well, you know, God, I I, I got in the wrong assembly line and, and it just didn't work out. We're saying, God, you made a mistake when you created us either male or female. But see, it's inconsistent with the lordship of Jesus, because if we are going to confess to the lordship of Jesus and say, say you're in charge, then it demands that if he's Lord, that he's always right and that he does everything well. It's not just that he is right. It's just not that you have to begrudgingly say, oh, shucks. All right, Jesus, you get you win. I don't know what I'm going to do with these desires. Listen, what, what, what this says is that he's right and everything he does is good. And everything that we do, and we all do it, everything that we do that goes against his good design is not for our good. No matter what the lying culture tells you, it's not for your good. But hey, I'm not just going to pick on people in that camp. Adultery, premarital sexual activity, cohabitation, rampant fornication, they all fail to give God glory because they desecrate the vivid picture of the gospel the covenant marriage was supposed to be. If you were to look, we don't take time to do that this morning, but if you were to look at Ephesians chapter 5 and Paul's instructions to husbands and wives, you would find that Paul says essentially that one man, one woman, until death do we part, that model of marriage is primarily to illustrate the beauty and the mystery of the commitment to Christ, of Christ to his church. That was the whole purpose of it. It wasn't so you wouldn't have to be lonely primarily. Primarily, it was so God would receive glory by a bunch of illustrated sermons walking around in Sherman and Rochelle and Dave and Katie and me and Ginger and Daryl and Judy, etc., etc., of what the church looks like in relation to Christ. That was the idea. Now, none of us that I just mentioned or any of you have done that perfectly. But the idea is that as we surrender our lives to be discipled to Jesus, that's the idea that people are seeing, hey, this is what this is all about by looking at our marriages. And so when we just throw the, the covenant side out of it, and we're just sleeping with whoever in whatever circumstances, we are desecrating that picture of the gospel. You're bringing shame to the gospel by doing that. Shame to Christ. Shame to the glory of his name. Any deviation from this ideal portrays a false image to the world of what Jesus Christ has done and its commitment never to leave us or cheat on us. And the absolute plague of our culture today. Believe me, I talk to people, multiple people, usually a week, at least a month, is the use of pornography. And the use of pornography fails to glorify God in at least three ways. First, it takes men and women who are co-equals with us as image bearers of the living God and turns them into objects for our own selfish pleasure. And if any of us think that we will not give an answer for that desecration of the image of God, we are sorely mistaken, sorely mistaken. But that's not all. Second, it fails to recognize that God is the giver of good gifts. And those good gifts being husbands and wives. And and it assumes that just anyone can be taken for our lustful pleasure without the hassle of laying down my life for somebody. I'll just kind of cut out the middleman and go straight to what I want. And for the married person, the single person, porn use says to God, sticks your finger right in the face of God. And it says, I don't trust you to be enough for me. 
I don't believe that you are able or will provide everything I need to be satisfied. I don't believe it. So this morning, where are you broken sexually? Where are the cracks in your foundation? Where are the things in your mind, in your soul, in your spirit, the the painful residue of past sin that has gone far too long undealt with? Where are the, the secret habits that no one knows about, the private relationships that haven't been discovered yet? Where are they? Where are they? Where have you failed or where are you failing to glorify God in your body and with your sexuality? I said earlier, and I meant it, if you're not a Christian, I wish you would be. I wish you'd trust Jesus, but but frankly, nothing that I said applies to you directly. Indirectly, absolutely it does, because it's all still true. But this passage in in 1 Corinthians 6 was written, and this is the scary part, folks, it was written to the church. It wasn't saying all those nasty adulterers and homosexuals and all that stuff out there. No! He was saying, you, you. So for today, we're going to forget about, you know, the perverts in Hollywood and the radical gay agenda and all that stuff we love to talk about to divert attention from ourselves. And we're going to say with Peter that it's time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And so I ask you, forgetting all those guys, if you claim to be a believer, then I would remind you, as Paul did, of the gospel. If you are a believer, God has washed you. God has sanctified you. And God has justified you. And he's given you the Holy Spirit to dwell inside you. Not to condemn you. That's the whole deal, man. We always think that if anyone knew, I'd be doomed. But God did not send the Holy Spirit to condemn you. But to transform you and reshape you until you're back into the image of God. And to help you, to enable you to flee from sexual immorality. And to glorify God in your body. God never commands anything that he doesn't enable you to do. So how do we begin? We begin this process of glorifying God in our bodies with two things, and both are required. can't skip any steps. The first thing is just honesty. If something's in your head right now and you're thinking, I'm dealing with it, no, you're not. No, you're not. Start with honesty. And the second thing is repentance. And we've talked a lot about repentance and many, many times about how repentance is is to to look at where you're headed and look at Christ and turn away from where you're heading and turn to Christ. And the only way you know you're turning towards Christ is when you're obeying what he says. Jesus said, why do you say that I'm Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things I said? You can't call Jesus Lord if you're not obeying him. So right now, we are not a big response church because I trust the Holy Spirit to do most of the work or all the work rather. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm helping the Holy Spirit out here. Um, I, I trust the Holy Spirit to do all the work, but, but I'm going to hopefully in line with what the Holy Spirit is saying, I want everybody in this room to bow your heads and close your eyes. I know these issues are very, very, very private, very, very private. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, so don't get scared. I'm not, this is, this is you and Jesus, but you all know what the definition of insanity is. It's to, you know, do the same things and expect a different result. So what I want you to do is just catalog your own mind and let the Holy Spirit come and illuminate some things to you and point out some things to you. And I want you to just take a minute. You can do this completely silently, but I'm going to give you just a little bit of time to be honest with the Lord Jesus because I hate to scare you. I'm not trying to scare you, but he already knows. He knows what websites you were at. He knows who you were talking to at work. 
He knows um, the, the secret shame of things that you've done or want to do. He knows it. So let's just stop playing games with him and just begin to tell him that you know he knows it and you're going to acknowledge it. So just talk to him right now. You can do that completely in your mind, but just do it. Don't let the moment pass. Don't make vows to him. Don't say, I'll never again or, um, you know, I'm going to get this under control. Just tell him who you are because he already knows. Some of you, if you'll just let him, he wants to heal you. He wants to transform you back into the image of God. Some of you have discovered through Paul's first words in this passage that you are not believers, that you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord. You might be associated with, with a religion. You might be associated with a church. Heck, you might be even a part of this church for a long time. But you're discovering, oh my goodness, I do not know the Lord Jesus. Man, that's a great place to start. To say, Lord, well, as I'm cataloging these sins, I realize what a mess I've made of my own attempt to be good, to be righteous. And so, Lord, I just, I just throw it all on you. I just trust you. The Bible says, real simple two-step process. It says, if you'll confess that Jesus is Lord in Romans chapter 10 and that you will believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which implies obedience, then you will be saved. What that means is to say, all right, Jesus, I'm out of the driver's seat. You're in charge forever and ever. You're in charge. And I just invite whoever wants to to do that today and then let me know about it after service because I really would love to pray with you. The rest of you, now that you've been honest, you need to take an opportunity to repent. And I'm telling you, uh, I, there are people in this room who have been greatly helped by just getting their garbage out into the open. I don't mean like in a public setting like this, but just talking to someone. Um, and so if that's you today, I want to return your attention back to those little white cards. Anything that I get will be absolutely, 100%, undeniably, unbreakably confidential. And if you don't want to put the details on the card, just say, call me, give me the number. You don't have to put your name on the card. Just say, call me and put the number, and I will be in touch with you this week. Because it's time for judgment to begin at the house of God. It's time for us to, who, who represent Christ and who are, who are like God, to start to look like God and avoid the, the pervasiveness of this, this evil in our culture. And to be free from it by the work of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us to live within us. So I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to receive the Lord's Supper together. But one last strong appeal. Would you please, please have the guts to fill out that card and, and, and move, move forward today into the healing that you so desperately need. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help, your assistance, to be what we cannot, to acknowledge what is painful to look at insurmountable challenges within our own flesh. Some of us are at the level of addiction or got ingrained desire. There's all kinds of things that make this difficult. But, God, you still command us to glorify you and with our body, Lord God. And so that tells me that, that if we can trust you, that you'll help us. And so, God, I pray that you would move in people's hearts today and let them come to the place where they fully, totally, 100% trust you, God. Trust you more than the than the the filth, the lie, the, the the God, just the deception of these types of sins, Lord God. Let them be free. Let them be whole. In Jesus' name.